All right, going ahead and open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 9 through 20 this evening. All right, last week we kind of looked at our uh, methods of interpretation, uh, kind of set how we were going to look at the book of Revelation. And we handled the first eight verses kind of looking at the purpose of the book. Uh, We said that the purpose of the book of Revelation, uh, yes, it tells us all that happens towards the end or at the end and how uh, the end plays out, the end times play out. Um, But there was a reason behind that, and that reason was to give us hope. Um, We talked about how the church at this time had faced some persecution, how God and His sovereignty knew that persecution was coming even more widespread. And one of the purposes of this book being written was to declare to the church, though things might be difficult now, though things might be hard now, um, understand and remember that Jesus wins. At the end, uh, once all is said and done, Jesus wins, God wins. Because of that, believers win. And though you might be going through persecution right now, have hope that in the future, and remember that God is still in control, remember hope in the future that uh, ultimately all this works out for God's glory and our good. So, to kind of carry on um, the rest of the text... Uh, We're going to finish out chapter 1 this uh, evening, and then over the next couple of weeks, we'll look at the seven churches that are written to in chapters 2 and chapters 3. And then chapter 4 is really when you get into kind of looking um, how everything plays out within the seven-year tribulation at the end of times. Um, And so, uh, but tonight what we're looking at is... um, Jesus and His church. Uh, as, as John uh, begins to receive this vision, he's just started off with his greeting in the first eight verses, and now he kind of gets his first vision. His vision kind of comes in two stages. Uh, the first, and we'll see this in a little bit, is kind of uh, what is going on right now, and that's his letters to the seven churches, uh, and then what is to happen in the future, and that's chapter 4 through uh, basically the end of the book. And so uh, the context of this passage is Jesus to the local church because here in the passage that we'll look at tonight, John or, or Christ is giving John the call to write down this message and to hand it out to the seven local churches. So that helps us understand that the context of this is Jesus and his interaction with the church. So instead of reading the whole thing, we'll read it in sections. Um, and let's just start off. And let me just say this. Last week, I'm, I know I did an outline uh, for y'all. I know tonight some of y'all were looking for that. Uh, if that's something that y'all want, afterwards tell me, and I'll make one for this, and then I'll make them uh, subsequently for each week that we do this. Um, if y'all want it, I will do it. If not, I'm not going to do work that I don't have to do. So... Um, I mean, it's just, I could say I don't want to waste paper or anything like that, but that's just, that's just not the reality of it. I don't mind doing the work if y'all want it, but if not, then I'll save that time. All right, let's look at verses 9 through 11. 
says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia, Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Now let's go ahead and pray. Uh, then we'll look at this passage and then we'll look at the rest of it. Father, we come before you now. God, I pray that as we open up your word, as we look at your truth, God, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would encourage us. God, I pray that you would challenge us. And Father God, as we look at Jesus and his relationship to the church, Father God, I pray that, um, that it would just increase our faith in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Okay. So what we see in this passage is that John, who is on the island of Patmos, he has this supernatural vision. Now John starts off and he says in verse 9 that he is uh, John, your brother, that's referring to brothers in Christ, uh, and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and the patient endurance that are in, Je- that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. Now, remember, we've talked about how the church has gone through some persecution. Widespread persecution is coming for the church. Paul, or John, excuse me, John says, Look, I am your brother in, and your partner in this tribulation. And he mentions that he's on the island of Patmos. Now, he's not there because he's on vacation. The island of Patmos was where Rome sent their uh, political prisoners. It wasn't necessarily and inherently like a jail, uh, but they were on this island that was about 40 miles uh, in diameter. Uh, and this is where they were forced to stay. Um, there were some homes, there was uh, some buildings, some people lived in caves, uh, but they were forced to go to this island. There was a, a cult of Artemis that existed there, uh, and this is where John finished out his days, uh, being exiled to this island. And he tells us why. Because of the... Um, the part of the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ uh, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John had been out proclaiming Jesus Christ, preaching about Jesus, talking and telling others about Jesus. Because of that, he was arrested and he was shipped off to Patmos as a prisoner. So John understands, as the author, he understands the idea of tribulation. He understands the idea of persecution. He under, understands the idea of having to endure uh, bad things happening to someone who is simply doing what is good and what is right, teaching and preaching about Jesus Christ. All right, so he's on this island in seclusion. He's on this island in tribulation and persecution. And then in verse 10, he says that I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a voice behind me like a loud voice, or excuse me, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So when it says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, now, there are times when Paul uses this, uh, and he's just simply talking about walking in the Spirit, or being Spirit-led, or being submissive to uh, the Holy Spirit's leadership in our life. It's not what John is referring to here. What John's referring to is a very super, supernatural experience where he was um, almost in this trance-like state where God was giving him this very specific 
vision. Now, what this does is us understanding that is two things. One, it helps us understand the, um, the importance and the specialness of the book of Revelation that um, Peter tells us that as uh, men uh, wrote that God inspired them or that God used them to write down his words. And so the idea there is that when Peter writes his letters, when, when the people write the, the, the gospels, when Paul writes his letters, when the people wrote the Old Testament, they weren't necessarily in these trance-like states. They were, they were writing, God was leading. It was definitely a supernatural experience, but not in this same uh, capacity. In this sense, uh, um, John, much like the Old Testament prophets, or much even like Paul, when he talks about in Corinthians how he gets called up to the, uh, the second heaven or the third heaven, uh, and, and God gives him this vision that he's not to tell anybody. He gets a vision. He sees things. Uh, God tells him, don't tell anybody that. Keep that for yourself. That's a big secret. Here, John gets a vision, and he's in a trance-like state. And so it shows us the specialness of this book. But also, I want us to understand that this is not a commandment that we are to, to seek out these kind of uh, hyper-spiritual uh, trance-like or, or states of being in the Spirit. This is a kind of a special uh, time where John receives this letter, or where John receives this message, this prophecy, to be proclaimed to others. We are not commanded to try to create these hyper-spiritual situations like this. Now, there are some uh, in the charismatic circles that would uh, say that this is something that we should pursue. We are never commanded to. We're never called to. This is not commonplace in Scripture. Uh, In fact, in the New Testament, there's only a handful of times with the apostles that this even occurs. But it tells us and it shows us um, the importance of this message. And it helps set the context that this is a message given to God in a very, or given to John in a very spiritual way from Jesus. And the message specifically is to write down what he sees and to send it to these seven churches. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So he is to write down this message. Now he's about to get really two different messages. He's about to get this message to these seven churches. And then he's going to get the messages for everything that is to come. So he is to write down these um, this word, what he sees, and send it to these churches. Now, last week we discussed that there are some who view these churches as symbolic of different ages of the church throughout history. Uh, So um, Ephesus would be the earliest church, and then you've got Smyrna, and we would kind of be in the Laodicean period. Um, So if that's how you want to look at this passage, then that's going to impact how you look at these churches over the next few weeks as we look at those. Personally, I believe these are real churches. These are real cities with real churches that, uh, as John wrote this, he would have sent with a messenger uh, from a ship in Patmos, and uh, they would have taken it because these... um, these cities are actually written uh, in this order uh, that if someone had came from Patmos and then came to the nearest uh, other dock or, or, or landing place, and they were to go about in a, in a logical route, this is the route that they would take. 
So this is kind of setting our context. That the, the whole purpose of what we're about to read, it's a letter to these churches. And really what it's going to do is it establishes Jesus as the author of this letter. And it establishes Jesus and his relationship to the church. Remember, the church has gone through um, persecution. Persecution is coming. And then as John sends out these letters, or as he writes down these letters and sends them out as commanded by God, he is, these letters, some of them have, um, I believe there's one that is only positive, I believe there's one that's pretty much only negative, and then the rest of them kind of go in this fashion, hey, here's something good, but here's something I have against you. Here's something that you're doing well, here's something that you're struggling with. And that's kind of the theme that we see repeated over and over again in these letters written to these seven churches. And so, as Jesus being the ultimate author of this, it shows us um, his relationship to the church as one who can write these letters to show them, to encourage them, to chastise them where they are strong and where they are weak. So in verses 12 through 17, John sees a vision of Jesus that reveals Jesus' faithfulness to the church. Look at verses well, 12 through 16. Look at verses 12 through 16. It says this. Then I turned to see the voice. So he heard that loud voice like a trumpet. And so he turns to see who was speaking to him. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held uh, the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So as John turns to look, this voice that he has is the voice of Jesus. He calls him the Son of Man. I saw this, um, I turned and saw um, one speaking to me that was like the Son of Man. Now remember, Son of Man is one of the terms Jesus has given in the Gospels, what he's called the Son of Man. So this is who he is talking about. As he turns, he sees Jesus. Now understand, as he turns and he sees Jesus, This image that we are presented with, this is not to be a uh, photographic image of Jesus. So uh, if we go to heaven, we're not going to necessarily see Jesus with his eyes on fire and this white hair and uh, this robe and this sash and the feet of bronze. This is a metaphorical image meant to show us different characteristics and attributes of Jesus in relation to the church and in relation to these letters that he is sending out to the these seven churches. So as John turns around, what are the things that he sees? The first thing that he sees, uh, it says in verse 12, on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now we're going to jump ahead just a second to verse 20. Look at verse 20. It says, um, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, the angels, we'll get to that in a second, of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
So the first thing that he sees as he turns and sees or turns to look at this voice is he sees these lampstands. And these lampstands, what he tells us, literally, uh, there's no, no, no debating, no questioning. He says, these are the seven churches. These seven churches that he is writing to, these lampstands are symbolic for those churches. Now, in Zechariah, Zechariah gets a, a, a vision. The book of Zechariah gets a vision about uh, uh, Israel. And God presents Israel as a, uh, a lampstand with seven branches. Uh, and so that is... Um, we kind of see the same uh, similarity or the same symbolism coming along uh, with God's church now. Uh, and so um, the, the, the lampstands represent the church. Um, if you think about it, lampstands carry the light. As churches, we are uh, to carry the light of the world. We are to carry the light of Jesus Christ in the darkness. Uh, we are the light of the world. Uh, we are to proclaim the light, the goodness of Jesus Christ. So that's more than likely why uh, God uses that symbolism is because as the church, we are to declare uh, the, the goodness, the brightness, the, um, in the darkness, the light of Jesus. Now he says he saw the, the seven lampstands in verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So the son of man is Jesus. And he's, where's he at? He is in the midst of the lampstands. Jesus loves his church. Jesus is the head of the church, the Bible tells us. And so Jesus is in the midst of these lampstands. I think that's important for us to point out and to recognize because, once again, as Jesus writes these letters, the majority of these letters are, hey, here's something good, but here's something bad. Here's something that you need to work on. These aren't all letters of roses and rainbows. These are Some of these letters are harsh. You have lost your first love. They're, they're, they're not necessarily encouraging pat-on-the-back letters. Some of them are, look, here's a serious fault that you you have. You've allowed the, uh, the prophetess or this cult, this Jezebel into your church and you, and you applaud her. Get rid of that. These are bad things. And so with this chastisement coming, the fact that Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands, that it is a reminder that he has not um, disregarded them. He has not abandoned them. It's not, hey, the voice or Jesus is over here and the lampstands are over here, but Jesus is in the midst. He's in the middle of them. He has surrounded them because Jesus loves his church. And even when a church has faults and even when a church has flaws and even when a church uh, struggles in different areas, God Jesus still loves his church, and he is still the head of the church, using the church to be his light in the world to draw more people to himself. All right, so he sees um, in the midst of the lampstands the Son of Man. Then he begins to describe what he looks like. The first thing he says is clothed with a long robe and a golden sash. So what's so important about this robe and the sash? Two things. And they both show us two of, of the characteristics of Jesus. The robe is... Um, the word for this robe, this, this Greek word uh, for robe, is only used here in the Greek New Testament. But in what's called the Septuagint, which is the, um, the Greek 
translation of the Old Testament. They took uh, the Old Testament, they translated it into Greek. This word is also used, I believe, six times um, in conjunction to the robe of the chief priest. The chief priest who would go into the temple to offer the sacrifice for the people. The chief priest who is to lead the people to God. The chief priest who had that responsibility on him, that burden on him to spiritually lead the nation of Israel to God, to worship, to obedience, to following Him. Jesus wears this robe because as the Bible clearly tells us in different areas like Hebrews, that Jesus is our high priest. He is the one who was our sacrifice uh, to uh, draw us closer to God or to provide that way to God. He is the one who intercedes on our behalf as our high priest even now. And so as Jesus wears this robe, he shows his position as priest. He shows his position as the one who goes between the Father and his people and makes way for the people to be able to come to the Father. Jesus is our high priest. It also talks about the sash around his chest. Now, the sash was common among uh, rich and poor during this day. The, the difference was, well, the material that it was made of, but also the positioning. A common day laborer would wear his sash around his waist because he could then take his tunic and tuck it in there so that when he was working, it wouldn't get in his way. The wealthy, those with, with a high rank, those who were dignitaries, those who were kings and higher up, they wore it around their chest. And as they wore these, these sashes around their chest, it showed that they were exalted, that they were kingly, that they had uh, prestige, that they were dignitaries, that they had a high rank. Jesus is our high priest, but he is also our king. He is the one who leads. He is the one who rules. And this picture of Jesus in the robe and this high uh, chest sash shows that he is our high priest and he is also our king. You could also argue that the fact that he is giving this message uh, points to him as our prophets, as the prophet spoke God's word. He is the prophet, priest, and king. But specifically, he is priest and king here in this picture. And so as John is writing these letters to the church, they are reminded that Jesus, who is the ultimate author of these letters, Jesus, who this message is coming from, as John writes it down, it is coming to them from their high priest who intercedes for them before God and their king who they are to lead or to follow because he is the king who is a good king, who loves them, who wants what's best for them. And because he has saved them, he is our king. He is the one that we follow. All right, so he says... Um, Clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. Verse 14. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. So what's the importance of Jesus having white hair? Well, during this time, the idea of white hair signified wisdom. With age came the, uh, the graying or the, the whiting of the hair. Proverbs talks about this. Uh, and with that came wisdom. Well, he describes Jesus' hair as white, like white wool, like snow. 
He basically paints a picture of it as as white as anything that we could recognize. Kind of the, the purest white. And what this shows is the greatness of his wisdom. That Jesus is wise enough to lead. If he is our high priest, if he is our king, if he is the head of the church who cares for us and loves us, he is wise. So once again, as Paul writes this letter, as Jesus gives this letter to be written, it is not coming from a place of foolishness. It is not coming from a place of selfishness. It's not coming from arrogance or pride. It is coming from wisdom. It is coming from the God who knows all things. It's coming from the God who is sovereign and who is omniscient. It's coming from the God who sees and knows all. And in his perfect wisdom, he knows what is best. He knows what is good for us. And so this message that is being given comes from the one who is ultimately wise. Then it talks about his eyes. It says, his eyes were like a flame of fire. The idea of his eyes being like a flame of fire is symbolic for divine insight or discernment. There's so many of these letters where, where, where John writes to these churches and he says, look, here's something that you're doing good. And it's so easy sometimes for us as, as a church or us as individuals to... To kind of make sure the world sees what we want them to see. They see the good stuff. They see what we want them to see. And we kind of hide the, uh, the icky stuff. We kind of hide the bad stuff kind of behind this mask or behind this uh, uh, facade. Uh, kind of hiding what we don't want people to see. Jesus, once again, is the one sending this message through John, looks at the church and declares to them, because of my sovereignty, because of my wisdom, because of my omniscience, because I know everything, I can see through any facade, I can see through any fakeness, I can discern the hearts of men, I can discern and see your strengths and your weaknesses. So as these letters come, they come from one that you cannot hide from. They come from one that sees all and knows all. And for some, that might be a scary thought, but ultimately that's not a scary thought. It's not a scary thought that God can look at our lives and, and divide the good from the bad, divide the truth from the false, uh, divide uh, what we want people to see and, and what, we, what, we, what we try to hide back, that He can see all of that, that, that our lives are laid bare before God. That might be scary, but that's a good thing. And ultimately, it should cause us to trust Him and love Him more because He sees the parts that we don't let anyone else see, and He still loves us. He still died for us. He still rose for us. He still saved us and accepted us. He still stands before God on our, uh, or for us or on our account. And so as Jesus writes these letters, sends these letters through John, we see his wisdom and we see his discernment as one who can look at that church and see, here's where you're at, here's what you need to change so that you can do and be better. Then in verse 15, he goes on, he sees his feet. It says, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Two things kind of point out or stand out about that. One, um, these feet made of bronze that had come out of the furnace. 
there were two, two reasons why they would put the metal in the furnace. One was for strengthening. They would heat the metal and cool it down and heat it and cool it down to strengthen that metal, to, to make it stronger. They had this whole process where they would um, heat it and cool it at different rates and different temperatures to strengthen the metal. And so Jesus Christ, with these metal feet, He has stability. He has strength to uphold the church to protect the church, to guide the church, to lead the church, that if there is something to be built on, it is on Jesus because He stands firm and He stands strong. This goes back to the message of, um, or the, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus closes that out and He says, look, if you take what I've said and you live by it, you're like building your house on a firm foundation or on the rock. And if you choose not to, then you're building the foundation of your life on the sand that shifts and that brings destruction. Jesus, the things that He has called us to, the things that He has commanded us to, how He has said that we are to live our lives, it is stable, it is strong, it is supportive. And so one, we see the strength of Jesus and the stability of Jesus to lead the church and to command the church. But it also signifies His purity. Another thing they would do with the metal in the furnace is as it melted down, the, um, the, the bad stuff, would, would the impurities would rise to the top and they would scrape off that, that dross, and then uh, it would purify that metal. It would get rid of the bad stuff, get rid of the impurities and make it more pure, more refined. And so not only is Jesus strong enough, but Jesus stands for the church in His purity. That there is nothing or no one as pure and as holy as Christ. And so all of this, this vision that, Jesus, that John sees of Jesus, it's building up this picture of Jesus as one who can control the church, who can lead the church, who desires what is best for the church, who is its prophet, who is its king, who leads in wisdom and discernment and strength and purity. And then it talks about his voice. It says, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. This signifies power. This signifies strength. I've been to Zimbabwe several times, and Zimbabwe has one of these um, massive kind of uh, worldwide wonders. It's called Victoria Falls. I believe it's either uh, the second or third biggest waterfall in the world. And when you get close to it, you, you see the, the, the size of it and you hear it. Even from miles off, you can hear this water. And the closer you get to it, it drowns out everything else. You cannot hear anything else because of the power, of the, the, the sound that is coming from these waterfalls. Kind of the same thing if you go to a, a river where it's rushing hard, like a, like a whitewater rafting type thing. That water in spots where it's uh, um, the most tumultuous, it is so loud you can't hear. And if you fall in the water, it is so powerful that it's pushing you along. And there's nothing that you can do except basically go with the flow because its power completely dwarfs your own. And as he looks at Jesus, he sees this one whose voice is like many rushing waters. And it signifies his power and it signifies his strength. And it signifies his, his might over everything else. 
And as he writes to this church, it is a reminder to the church that Jesus is stronger than us. He is greater than us. He is more powerful than us. And then as people, as individuals that make up the church and as the church as a whole, we are to respond to that power of Jesus and recognize that he is one that we can trust and he is one that is good and he is one that we can follow. And then it says in verse 16, in verse 16 it says, In his right hand he held seven stars. Now, two things about this. First, we're going to focus on the right hand. Then we'll look at the seven stars and what that means. So the idea of the right hand carries with it two things. Possession and protection. Possession, declaring to these churches, you are mine. I possess you. Jesus said, once you're in my hand, there is nothing that can take you out of it. We are in His hands. Our names are written on the hand of God that He holds us in His hand. We are His, and there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And also the idea of protection. Once again, remember, this is written by John who is sitting in exile on Patmos. It is written to churches who have experienced and are going to experience persecution. And it's a declaration that says, look, no matter what happens, no matter what comes your way, understand that I possess you, you are mine, and I will protect you. I will protect you eternally. I will protect you that there is nothing that ultimately can harm you. If God is for you, who can be against you? If God is for you, what can man do? It is better to fear God, the one who can destroy both body and soul, than to fear man. God says, I've got you. You are mine, possessed and protected by me. And so it says, in his hands, he holds the seven stars. Now, what are those seven stars? Jump down back to verse 20. It says, and the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So that brings up a question. What are the angels of the seven churches? Well, there's really three options uh, that, that can work with, I think, one being the best. So one of the options that these are literal angels that these churches have. Uh, and so these churches, we would assume all churches kind of have uh, like a guardian angel that kind of uh, watches over that church, protects that church, guides or, or leads that church, or just uh, has that God uses in some way. It's a nice idea, but there's nothing, um, there's nothing else in Scripture that, that supports that. There's nothing else in Scripture that supports uh, churches having uh, individual angels. So that's a stance that some people take. But I don't know that it's the strongest. Next, some take it to to believe that this is the pastor or the leader of the church. So the seven stars, the stars represent the pastor, the bishop, the elder, the leader of the church. The problem I have with this, or why I don't think it's the greatest, is in the rest of the New Testament, as Paul writes his letters especially, um, There's a lot of responsibility placed on the shoulders of pastors, the shoulders of leaders. In fact, we're told in, I can never remember if it's 1 John or James chapter, but it's one of them, it's 3.1. It says, Not many of you should assume to be teachers, knowing that you will be judged more harshly than others, or more harshly than the rest. 
In Hebrews, it talks about um, calling the church to, uh, to submit to leadership because they bear the responsibility for their souls. There is a, a large responsibility placed on leadership. And yet, when you look at these letters, especially these letters, that, uh, the, the parts of them that, that have some kind of chastisement, the letters are all, uh, they all start the same way. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, right. The, the angel of the church in Thyatira, right. But in the, the, the core of those letters, there's nothing written to the leadership. And you would think with the responsibility given to pastors, giving to leaders in the rest of the New Testament, if he's writing to these churches and he says, look, you've, you've lost your first love. Hey, pastor, you need to do something as you lead your sheep. Or y'all need to get a new pastor because this pastor brought in this Jezebel into your church. And yet his, his letters are only to the churches, not to leadership, but only to the churches. So I tend to believe that the third option is the best. Now, once again, if you believe the other two, that's fine. It doesn't necessarily impact how anything is uh, 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 read or interpreted in anything, any major way. But here's the way that I think is the best. That this is the personification of the church's identity. That these angels are, are not literal angels, but they are representative of this church with its strength and with its weaknesses, the personification of this church. Because as these letters go out, they address the strengths and the weaknesses of these churches. Our church has strengths and weaknesses. There are things that we uh, uh, excel at, and there are things that we could get better at. Every church is like that. There's no church that does everything perfectly. And so... Um, as he writes these to these seven angels or these seven stars, the idea that he's writing not necessarily to specific angels or to the specific leaders, but he's writing to the overall of the church, kind of this personification of the strengths and weaknesses of this church, to me really fits the context better. Plus, as he holds them in his right hand, he's not just holding the leaders. And he's not holding angels that are in heaven. If he's holding these stars in his right hand and they are the personification, the representation of these churches, then he is holding these churches in his right hand. To me, it just fits better. It holds up better. Once again, either one of those, if you want to believe them, that's fine. I think what stands best there, what fits the context of the rest of the passage, is that these stars, these angels, are not literal angels. They're not leadership, but they are the personification of these churches, representative of the churches. Verse 16, in his right hand, uh, he held the seven stars. And then from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. The sharp, two-edged sword from his mouth. Is the Word of God. In Galatians chapter 5, uh, the Word of God is called the sword of the Spirit. As Jesus speaks, He speaks the Word of God in power. It is the Word of God that is our offensive weapon against uh, uh, the enemy, but it's also the Word of God that Hebrews tells us cuts sharp like a knife, cuts sharp like a sword, that it cuts through our hearts and our soul as a sword or as a knife does through bone and marrow. And so it's 
he's writing these letters, he writes with the authority of the word of Jesus that cuts to these churches and says, look, here's what you're doing. Good, let me encourage you. Let, but now let's cut to the quick. Let's cut to the heart. Let's cut through the mask and to the charades and to the facades. And let's cut to the core of who we are to see where we are struggling and what we need to do that we might be a church that better honors God. Then it says that his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the glory of God. That that only Christ has the glory of God that, that deserves our worship. That deserves for us to follow Him. That deserves for us to bow before Him. That deserves as individuals and as the church for us to worship Him. It's reminiscent of the stories of the transfiguration in Matthew, Mark, and Luke where Jesus is transfigured into that that bright, shining light as He shows the glory that He possesses in heaven outside of His earthly form. And it's the same idea. He is showing the glory of heaven. He is showing His worth. He's showing His magnitude. And so as John looks and he turns and he sees this image, once again, this is not like a a, a photorealistic image of Jesus. This is a a metaphorical image showing us who Jesus is, why Jesus has the authority and the position and the goodness and the rightness to write these letters because he loves his church and he cares for his church. And then in verses 17 through 20, we see Jesus affirming his authority and power. Look at verses 17 through 20. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. If you never notice in Scripture, here, Isaiah, Ezekiel, whenever people have visions of God, this is always their response. They fall down on their face before God because they recognize his greatness and our inefficiency. It says, But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Then he goes on, ask for the mystery of the seven stars. We've read that a couple of times. So as Jesus begins to talk to John, John falls on his face. He falls now. Once again, remember, John is, is one who lived with Jesus for three years. He's, he's the one that, that is called the one that Jesus loved, and yet he sees Jesus in his power and his glory and his majesty and, and who he is and the fullness of who he is. And he can do nothing but fall on his face as though he is a dead man because he recognizes the greatness of Jesus. And Jesus lifts him up and he says, Fear not, I am the first and the last. This is the eternality of Jesus, that Jesus has no beginning and He has no end, that Jesus is God, that Jesus has always been and always will be. Another reason why He can be trusted. He then goes on to say that I am the, um, and the living one, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus, once again, reaffirming his purpose. He's reaffirming the gospel. I died and I'm alive. I died and I rose again. For the church, I have given my life. I have created the way of salvation. And then he says that in his hands, he holds the keys to death and Hades. 
In this time, the idea of having the key to something meant that you had power or the authority. If you were in jail, whoever had the key to that jail, they were the one with the power or the authority over that jail. So Jesus is saying, I have the power and the authority over death and Hades. Understand that everything that I'm about to tell you, everything that's going to happen, understand everything with with Hades and the beast and the locking up and the letting out and everything, it is all because of my plan. It is all because of my purposes. I have the authority. I have the strength. I have the power. And then he reaffirms the call to John in verse 19. He says, write therefore these things that you have seen, those that are, that's the letters that he's about to write, uh, those that are, remember those are going to real churches in this time, and those that are to take place after this. That's Revelation 4 on, when he's looking into the future, when he's prophesying about this apocalyptic vision, about what is to happen in the end, about what is to come. And so this this section, as John finishes out this first chapter, as we get into these letters that we'll begin looking at next week, this first section is a declaration of who Jesus is and why as He writes these letters and why as we look forward to the end times, why we can have hope, why we can have joy, why we can have peace, even when the picture of what is coming is, is not pleasant, it is not uh, beautiful. There are a lot of difficult things coming up in the rest of Revelation. But the reason why we can move forward, the reason why we can have peace and hope in this time is because of who Jesus is. And this vision that John has of Jesus shows us in these symbolic ways his power, his might, his position, his authority, everything of who he is and why he is to be trusted. Not just as individuals, but also as a church.